That was the first time where, you know, not even so much an experience, but something that I was doing, you know, outside of just like trying recreational drugs had really caught up to me. This was like a really low period for me. Like I was in a cell by myself and I would just sit in there and think, how did I get here? Why am I this way? How am I going to change my life around? This is Finding Founders a podcast showcasing the vibrant entrepreneurial spirit of Los Angeles and our journey to find the founders responsible. I'm Samuel Donner, and today on the show, we talk to Dylan Jacob, founder of Brooming, a unique drinkware company to insulate alcoholic beverages. Dylan has brought in more than $50 million and won Erston Young's 2019 Entrepreneur of the Year Award. And initially I thought, how does a glorified beer koozie rack in tens of millions of dollars? But in talking to Dylan, I soon found a driven individual that is passionate about solving problems, has an incredible attention to detail, and a laser focus. Ever since middle school, Dylan has been a hustler, finding a niche in selling weed, phone parts, and even flipping cars. What sets Dylan apart is his disregard for following other people's expectations. And we can trace this all back to a childhood marked by frugality. I grew up in a very religious household and like my dad just like did not buy anything unless it was an absolute necessity. So the majority of his money, uh, excess money went to the church. Um, and so we were always driving around in like, uh, you know, raggedy cars, wearing raggedy clothes. And like, I always like felt very poor. I think most of my fond memories are with my mom. Like she would take us out and like we'd go out in the forest and identify mushrooms and trees and like different specimens or like take um, like cast imprints of animal footprints and then identify what they were. Like we spent a lot of time outdoors doing really cool stuff. Because there wasn't much of a stipend to go out to movies or dinner, Dylan's mother nurtured his fascination with the natural world by spending time with him outdoors and teaching him about the world around him. But his father was less welcoming to his curiosity. My dad was a non-denominational Christian, just meaning he didn't belong to any one specific part of Christianity. He is what I call like a radical Christian. And so growing up, it was a lot of forced uh, religion. Like I was forced to go to church camps and youth groups and do a lot of different things that like I didn't resonate with Christianity. I didn't resonate with religion. It was something that was really forced on me and I didn't have any say in it. I was told from my dad that all of those things that I was in awe of and, and all the things that I had questions on could be answered by religion. Like there was always an answer to everything. Dad, how was this created? Dad, where did this come from? He would talk about space and how it's never ending and that. And I'm like trying to wrap my head around this as a kid. And the answer was always like, God. I was only told one side of the story. And then as I got older, I heard the scientific theory side of the story. And some of that still doesn't make sense. And so for me, I kind of have just separated myself both from religion and science and just said, I'm not going to sit here and like try and rack my brain for the rest of my life of like where we came from or where we're going and just kind of do my own thing. <laughs> so.
Dylan's father controlled everything that Dylan thought and consumed. His father tried to quench his curiosity and silence his questioning by contorting ambiguity to fit God's plan. The answer to every question, according to his father, was simply God. Left unquenched, Dylan's curiosity soon spiraled out of his father's control. There was just a lot of stuff that like, I literally wasn't allowed to do. And, and I wasn't having that. Like, I was so curious as a kid. Like, I wasn't allowed to play violent video games. Anything that was classified as non-Christian music, I wasn't allowed to listen to. So, like, I had CDs that, like, I would hide in my room. And it was like, oh, well, like, the more you tell me that I can't do something, the more I want to do it and figure out a way to actually, like, do it without getting caught. His father's strictness did not breed obedience. It cultivated self-reliance. Rather than killing his curiosity, his father's strictness emboldened Dylan. Each time Dylan flung himself into the unknown and emerged unscathed, his proclivity to diverge from the designated path grew. He became addicted to defying expectations. But Dylan was playing with fire and didn't always emerge from the experimentation unscathed. I remember watching my first scary movie. I was like, Second grade. Before you die, you see the ring. And I mean, holy shit, man. For like two weeks, I was sleeping on their floor in their room and having like night terrors, like waking up screaming and they had no idea why. And I finally broke down and told them that like this girl was like climbing out of a TV and trying to kill me in my dreams. And after that, I, like I still to this day hate scary movies, actually literally because of that. Like I, I hate them. So from then I was like, okay, like maybe some of what they're trying to protect me from has some validation, but it did, still didn't like kill the curiosity of like, you know, I still wanted to explore everything. So, you know, in some cases I was like, okay, I understand. In his mind, he's protecting me from that. In my mind, you know, I don't really know what I believe in at that point. Dylan didn't know what he believed in, but he was determined to create his own belief system. Although he realized that his father's strictness was a misguided attempt to protect him, in his mind, he didn't need protection. He understood that his father's values were drastically different from his own. Soon, Dylan would be free from his father's rules. My parents split when I was in fourth grade. So my mom, um, you know, like long story short, my mom and my dad just didn't see eye to eye. My mom really wasn't religious. And um, when she had met him, he wasn't religious. Over time, like things just really shifted. And like she felt we were in a toxic environment. Um, And I won't really go into detail on like what that whole situation looked like, but she did leave him and she had full custody of me and my two siblings. So my mom was like my superhero. I mean, literally, like I knew that if I went to her with anything, like she would figure out a way to make it work. If I wanted a new pair of shoes or whatever it was, how, however frivolous, like she would figure out a way to make that happen. But I felt bad asking for those things because I knew she was like busting her tail, trying, you know, putting food on the table, like trying to make sure that we had everything we needed. And my curiosity only got bigger and bigger. Like as I was exposed to the world, honestly, like as I got into public school and learned, I learned so many things that I didn't even know had ever existed. Say what you will about his religious upbringing, but Dylan had been successfully sheltered from the pitfalls of the world. Things changed. Because of his parents' divorce, his mom now had to provide for the family. She didn't have the time to create structure and discipline. And as a result, Dylan was free. 
Public school compounded that freedom and tore down the shelter that his father had worked so hard to construct. The possibilities for breaking the rules were endless, and he began to move from hiding games and CDs to experimenting with illicit substances. I already had so much curiosity, and after that, like, it was just even more. And so as I was going into fifth grade, like, I smoked weed for the first time in fifth grade. Me and my friends, like, stole it out of my their parents' bedroom. And then in eighth grade, I started getting into doing pills and stuff like that. Going back to that first time smoking weed, what made you, like, want to continue doing it? Like, if you're like, oh, like, th- there's no effect here. This is dumb. What brought you back? It was that curiosity. Like, I, anything that I hadn't experienced or, like, I was told I wasn't allowed to do automatically became a challenge of, like, well, why can't I try? Drugs were one way that Dylan sunk into the unknown. It was taboo, and he wanted to explore that taboo and thus challenge and build his own belief system. That very same self-reliance that was so tied to exploring his belief system showed up when he was confronted with conflict. Dylan could handle himself, and he made sure people knew that. Can we talk about the fight? So the fight that I got into in high school, this was the first time that I had gotten into a fight and actually hurt somebody. The kid that I got into a fight with, I actually like broke his jaw and knocked out four of his bottom teeth. They shut down the school and like sent people home early for the day. It was a very big deal and like I was in handcuffs. He went to the hospital. I had to get a bunch of stitches on my hand. I think my bone was sticking out. And I remember, I mean, I'm sitting in handcuffs in an offset room and I could hear my mom and dad in the other room. They were like showing them the video of what had happened. And I remember like hearing my mom sob. I'm like, my life is over. I'm potentially putting a huge financial burden on my mom. I was kind of the weird kid and I was picked on. And so I found like very early that the way to like stand up for myself was with violence. Um, I like something really shifted. I really realized how stupid and meaningless the majority of the fights that I'd gone into were. But at the time, I still had this double life. Like, even though I was like, okay, I'm not going to fight anymore or anything else, I still rationalized that, like, selling drugs was okay. And I had friends that were older. We would, like, smoke weed and play video games. And, like, to be cool and to be able to hang out with them, that was, like, what we did. I would sit there and tell them stories about how I was selling weed. And, like, I just felt like I belonged to something. And I I didn't want to lose that. Finally, Dylan was facing the consequences of his actions. Although he started out fighting strictly in self-defense, Dylan started to base his identity around a blatant disregard towards the rules and authority. He reveled in being labeled as the bad kid. An internal journey that started out as a study in self-reliance quickly turned to an absolute abandonment of his values. Dylan let his impulses take over. He wanted to prove he was independent and powerful because everything around him was changing so quickly. He was angry, and whenever he could rationalize violence, he let his anger flood forward. Even now, when I was talking to him, he rationalizes this violence by saying that others provoked him. But when you're angry, 
you're looking for a fight. Every interaction provokes violence. The only thing that brought him back to center was seeing his mother's tears rolling down her face. Walking off in handcuffs and watching his mother sob, fearing he had financially ruined his family, made Dylan reevaluate his impulsive disposition. He realized that doing things just to be rebellious didn't make him happy. He hurt the people he cared about. Yet, there still existed some cognitive dissonance. Dylan was sure he could safely continue his other vices without repercussion. Drugs became an essential component of his life. Uh, I tried psychedelics for the first time in eighth grade. And so I actually really liked psychedelics. We had, uh, the first time I ever doing them, I did salvia and I loved it. Like I was like, holy shit, I'd never experienced anything like this. I thought it was so cool. Psychedelics became something I was interested in. I was like, well, I want to try shrooms. Like everyone talks about mushrooms and it looks so fun and salvia just didn't last long enough. So I wanted to try it. That was a terrifying, terrifying experience. I mean, I had basically a full-blown, terrifying trip for about four and a half hours. I mean, it went from fun and giggly to terrifying and, like, me not knowing where I was at. Like, I couldn't tell if my eyes were open or closed. I had, um, like, an out-of-body experience, but I actually, like, watched myself die. And I remember coming out of that, and I was like, nope, like, never again, never doing psychedelics again. I can look back on it vividly and still remember like the most terrifying parts of that 12 years later. At the time I was also selling drugs. So like, again, I had access to all these things that like no one in my grade had access to. It eventually caught up to me. I mean, I would bring them to school or after practice or whatever. And within six weeks of being back in school, I was actually caught selling drugs in the school bathroom. That was a violation of probation. So, you know, first thing they do is they take you straight to juvenile detention. And then once I got processed for juvenile detention, I failed a drug test, which was another violation. And so I had all these things stacked against me and then I ended up spending about two months in juvenile detention. So I had been kind of stacking the odds against myself for years and years and years of never getting caught. And then all the dominoes fell at once. And like, I just felt like my life was crashing in on me. With essentially any drug he wanted at his fingertips, he lost track of his values and poured all his focus and curiosity into this dangerous outlet. Dylan's life was spiraling out of control. Caught selling drugs, the events that subsequently unfolded bore an eerie resemblance to the aftermath of the fight. He was again in handcuffs, but this time it was more serious. two-month period in juvenile detention was essentially like a two-month meditation retreat. Like I was in a cell by myself. You know, I was in there with a group of kids that came from very different households than I did and like getting to hear their like stories and why some of them were in there. I was just like, I don't belong here. And so those like two months, I would just sit in there and think, how did I get here? Why am I this way? How am I going to change my life around? 
it was like getting a reset button. And for me, like I look back and I'm so thankful that I got caught both times. I'm thankful that I was forced into anger management to really like examine why I was fighting so much. It really helped reset the way that I looked at the world. And I still had this curiosity, but it had shifted into a positive light. Like I wanted to explore the world in a positive way. and I wanted to make an impact. It all shifted into something positive. Juvie was hard, but it was necessary. Dylan finally had time to reflect. He looked back at all this curiosity and energy that was funneled into self-destruction and violence and decided he could use the same energy productively. While his rebelliousness had started as a reasonable product of his father's stringency, Dylan understood that he had let this facet of his personality consume him and shroud his empathy. He was ready to take his fatal flaw and shape it into something positive. After I got out of juvenile detention, I was on house arrest for six months. The question of where am I headed, I didn't necessarily have an answer, but I had started to formulate a plan. I just started setting goals. So it was like I had gotten the news from the school board that I was going to be allowed to come back for freshman year. I was like, I want to be in the top 20 in my class for freshman year. I go into school and my counselor's like, no, you can't take honors classes. You can't do any of this because you're a year behind. And I was like, just trust me, I'm going to be okay. And so she let me try it for a semester and I ended up doing really good and finished up freshman year like 18th or 19th in my class. So I had hit that goal. And then it became this goal. Like I had straight A's that year, like not a single B on any test. And it became a challenge. Like that was what I put all my energy to. I wanted to be number one. I wanted to be valedictorian. Dylan always had a desire to excel, to be at the top. Before he tried to test his limits by exploring what society deemed bad. He hadn't lost this rebellious spark. He just shifted its application. Now, he wanted to smash others' expectations of what he could achieve. He used school rather than drugs as a healthy outlet to explore the unknown and feed his inquisitive nature. But what Dylan missed most about his old life was the hustle, the entrepreneurial component of selling drugs. I know this sounds terrible, but like, I feel like a lot of entrepreneur stories start with selling some form of drugs, but it was fun for me. Like not the fact, like just the selling drugs part, but like filling in a gap and providing a service or product. And I redirected my energy into finding legal ways to make money. After I had been expelled, my mom kicked me out. She had enough of my shit. So for freshman and sophomore year of high school, I actually lived with my dad and my dad lived with my grandpa. So my grandpa, he actually immigrated to the US in the 1950s from the Middle East and he had a repair shop. So I would go to work all the time, like in my free time with my grandpa and help him work on these TVs and stuff. I remember people kept coming in with iPads, flat screen TVs, iPhones, all these different electronic devices that no one really knew how to fix at the time. And so I remember going home and finding some YouTube videos of this guy that did cell phone and iPod repair. And he had kind of linked in the comments his own store where he sold parts. At first I started, I bought like these little repair kits and I would buy up these phones in bulk. I'd buy like five, six, seven, eight at a time. And then I'd order the parts, fix them all up and then relist them on Craigslist and then sell them. I had identified like this really cool market and it became very lucrative because I'd been making way more money than I ever made selling weed. It was a really rewarding experience. And it continued to prove the concept of if you can find value, you can get paid for it. 
And then sophomore year hit, a bunch of repair shops popped up in my local hometown. It became very competitive and I started to get tired of it. So I had this idea it sparked in my head. I was like, rather than trying to compete on fixing devices, why not sell these guys parts and just charge an upcharge and I can deliver parts to them. So Ronnie, and I'm actually friends with this owner to this day, he owned a shop called I Repair Andy. I pitched him on the idea and I brought him like a box of a bunch of parts that I had. And I was like, just try these. Like, and I remember he called me like three or four days later. He's like, hey, I already went through all those parts. They're really good quality. Do you have any more? He was my first customer. I was like, I think this business idea is gonna work. Ronnie introduced me to a couple of the other shops. And moving through sophomore, junior, and senior year, that business started to expand. So I formed my first LLC junior year of high school. By senior year, we were working with over 100 repair shops around the U.S. Phone repair on the surface seems worlds away from selling drugs, but the same rules of supply and demand apply. Dylan already understood business. It was just a matter of going legit. But even though his entrepreneurial pursuits were entirely legal, he had trouble shedding his marred reputation. My senior year, I actually almost got a teacher fired because he was actually in his class telling his students that I was a drug dealer. I ended up going in there and confronting him and I got in a bunch of trouble because I like yelled at him in front of his class basically. Once we were in the principal's office, like he's asking why and I was like, why don't you ask him? Like he's in here basically spreading rumors and he ended up having to like write me a formal apology and tell his students that what he said was irresponsible and all this stuff. But that fight lived on. Like it was like a legend in Whiteland. People thought it was like a thug. And the people that were close to me knew what I was doing. The other half saw a kid that had a nice car. They knew that I didn't come from money and everyone was convinced that I was still a drug dealer. I tried to just chalk it up to, you know, high school rumors and whatever. But like when a teacher got involved, that hurt. That was when things really shifted for me. And I was in my top 10 of my class senior year. I graduated eighth out of 405 kids. I had turned my life around. I was getting straight A's. I was top in my class. I was running a super successful business. In my head, I had it all together. Dylan was something of an enigma. And this ambiguity produced speculation. With Dylan's history, the easy conclusion is that he was still a drug dealer. He just got better at hiding his drug money. I imagine this perception was incredibly frustrating. He knew that he had changed, but his past belied his legitimate success. With the exception of the teacher spreading rumors, Dylan wasn't bothered by the speculation floating around school. He was focused on the hustle and became an expert in the art of the flip. There was a, a subreddit that was really popular called Flipping. I was part of this community of flipping, so I knew all the different opportunities. It was like, there was social media accounts, there was phones, there was electronics, so I'd flip like laptops and iPads. Sometimes I'd flip TVs. I also flipped cars, like it was one of my other businesses. And so I would buy up cars that needed work and fix them, or I would buy up cars that I thought were a good deal. The Lamborghini is like this really interesting story because I, I just sold this BMW 335i that I had. I had made like four grand on it. And I was on Auto Trader looking for cars within like a 500 mile radius. This Lamborghini is on page one, sponsored ad. And it was a 2004 Lamborghini Gallardo. And it says motivated seller. And I was like, okay, I'm just curious. 
I'm just gonna message the seller. So I messaged this guy, he's a dentist in Michigan. So I literally flew out the next morning to Michigan, transferred $65,000 in his bank account. And then I literally drove it home back to Indiana. messages me and they're like, Hey, I have a dealership in Daytona and I want to buy your Lamborghini. So I drove it down to Florida and then I sold it for $85,000. So I made 20 grand on this one flip. And that was the biggest flip I'd ever done. Like I was like hooked. Dylan was able to flip in any industry and make a profit because he understood the building blocks of business that paired with ambition and bravery. He was unstoppable. But even with all this success, he saw flipping as more of a hobby than a career path. I considered myself a hustler. And I did not view myself as an entrepreneur. The equivalence to me is like being in a Broadway play in your local hometown versus going to Hollywood and becoming a famous actor, right? I was like, oh, I can make, you know, 20 grand here, five grand here, a thousand dollars here, and that's great. But this is never going to be my career. I just had grown up without money and I had identified this market where like I was making really, really good money, like more money than I would have as a graduate. And I was like, I'm gonna ride this wave as long as possible and save back this money because if I can save back a couple hundred grand and then have a full-time job, like by the time I retire or whatever, like I'm gonna be set. It was just because I had grown up in this environment where like I never wanted to go back to that, like where I struggled. I didn't want my kids to like, grow up in that way either. And so for me, it was just kind of like setting myself up for the future. Dylan loved the process, but his greater motivation was to capture something he lacked in childhood, stability. That's what Dylan was really searching for at this moment. He wanted to make money because he wanted to feel safe. He had grown up in an environment where money was scarce and he never wanted to return to that reality. But he also realized Though the money from these flips was good, it wasn't sustainable. So he searched. He searched for something that provided stability. Engineering seemed to be the answer, but he'd soon find it wasn't a fit. I had this passion and knack for like identifying opportunity. And so my thought was, I'm not gonna be an entrepreneur. Like there's no way that that's ever gonna happen to me, but I think I could be an inventor. Unfortunately, like my first like venture into engineering was complete opposite of like what I actually wanted out of engineering. So it put this like bad taste in my mouth and I went into that freshman year of school with like kind of already thinking in my head that I, maybe I was making the wrong decision, but I wasn't sure. But I was also taking like 18 credit hours and I was running this business in school. And I remember like I was working overtime, like acquiring new customers, still running on Instagram, doing over $300,000 in sales. This was like a really low period for me. Like I was really passionate about working out and I stopped completely. I stopped going to the gym. I stopped calling my friends. I literally was either studying or I was shipping out orders. 
I was like so overwhelmed. I was very distracted and also not super motivated. I had already gone into the school year with like the idea that maybe I didn't even want to do engineering. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was in this introductory freshman class and we did this exercise. Basically I had everyone stand up and they said, okay, if you would be happy making $60,000 a year, sit down. And maybe 20% of the class sat down. And then they said, you'd be happy making $100,000, sit down. And I would say probably half the class sat down. And then they said, if you would be happy making $250,000, sit down. And there was me and a couple other people standing up that wanted to be doctors. And then they said, you know, if you want to make over $500,000, sit down. And I was the only person standing up. And the teacher said to me, I remember this, like to this day, she goes, what do you want to be like an NBA star? And I was like, is that really like the world you live in where the only way to make $500,000 or more is to be a professional athlete? I was like, there's an entire world out here. Like I'm proving that like there's a way to make money. I mean, I'm not making half a million dollars a year in profit, but I feel like I can get there eventually. Then I felt even more disconnected. I was so confused about what I wanted to do. And I was just like sick to my stomach. Like I wasn't happy with how I looked. Like I had lost like 20 pounds. And I was like, something has to change. Ultimately, I decided I have a business right now that's making more money than what I would as a graduate. So I'm going to take a semester off and I'm not going to do my internship. I got back into the gym and I felt better than ever. I was like, this was the right decision. And my business was doing better than ever too. Four months later, I got a buyout offer from that franchise. And I was like, I could either do this for another year, or I can take the 100,000 right now, and I can accelerate and figure out what I wanna do. My goal still was to actually flip houses. So I took that 100 grand, I sold the company, and I bought a house. Dylan pivoted. He saw that he was unhappy and took strides to change his life. I think that day, the day where Dylan kept standing, was a turning point for Dylan's life. It was the day that he was confronted with the mundane, manageable goals of his peers. The day that he discovered proof that his goals were larger than academia could imagine. His general distaste for the commonplace made it clear that he would never be happy settling for a stable job, a traditional education, the white picket fence, and all that. For a while, he thought he could have it all, tackling the traditional and the atypical at the same time. However, his ambition was taking a toll on him both physically and mentally. The cracks were beginning to show. Dylan shed the conventional and pursued the thrill of the unknown. To satisfy his innate curiosity, he needed a fresh start. So he quit school, sold his company, bought some property, and ventured down a new path. Though exciting, this transition is still hard, and it was incredibly uncertain. The emotional attachment for me was actually the fear of failure. I had found something that worked. They, I didn't think it was going to be like a multi-million dollar company, but I knew that I could continue to scale it somewhat. Closing that chapter, I was ready to move on to something else. And it was missing this component for me where I didn't really get joy out of it. I got joy out of the process of starting the business, finding customers and like all the problem solving aspects of it. But the business itself didn't challenge me because I wasn't actually creating anything. 
I was solving an issue for customers, but I wasn't actually the one solving. I was just providing kind of a service. I mean, I was running a business that was doing $300,000 a year and I literally did not consider myself an entrepreneur. That mindset does not happen overnight. To me, it seemed so foreign. I grew up in this little small town in Indiana where no one did that. And I just thought that I had fallen into dumb luck and I could never replicate this again. That was how I viewed it. I didn't have a lot of confidence in myself. For me, it was like, okay, I'm gonna buy this house, fix this house up, sell that house, buy a few more houses, get in the real estate. It ended up turning into about a year long project. It was really fun for me at first. I pulled permits myself. I did all the architectural drawings. I took electrical tests, all these different things that I'd never done before, but every new project in the house was a different challenge. I realized that like I was missing this component. Flipping houses wasn't what I was passionate about. Building and creating value was. And so I was actively now searching for a new business idea. At this time, I did not yet consider myself an entrepreneur, but this business was when I started to accept, one, what I was good at, and two, I actually started to believe in myself for the very first time and actually use the term entrepreneur. I am an entrepreneur. We'll be right back after this break. I've been itching to travel, but there are two things getting in my way. Traveling is expensive, and we are in the middle of the largest pandemic the world has ever seen. But that didn't stop me from living out our travel fantasy and trying to save some money in that fantasy by calling Amtrak and saying, can I share a seat with my friend? Hello, thank you for calling Amtrak. This is Ronnie. I can help you. Hello. I was wondering if there are seats that could be shared. Seats that could be shared? Yeah, like, could I share a seat with a, a friend? I'm trying to understand. You, you, want, you want two people to sit in one seat? There's no such thing as seat sharing. Right. So like like my friend couldn't sit on top of me or anything like that during the ride. Uh, unfortunately, no. Your friend could not sit on top of you during the ride. No. Uh, man, I, I wish sharing a seat was as easy as sharing a podcast. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, you can share a podcast really easily. You could share uh, Finding Founders by screenshotting it or putting on Facebook, Snapchat, or Instagram story. Gotcha. But I mean, they will let you sit next to each other. You know, I feel like I... It's just I, not the same. Yeah, it's not the same. Like, I like, mean, you guys can get pretty close to each other, you know, lean on each other, lay on each other, or stuff like that. But to sit, to, to sit in each other's lap, that's probably going to be an issue. But you know what's never an issue? Sharing this podcast. Take a screenshot of this episode, tag at Finding Founders Podcast, and post to the social media of your choice. Don't forget to subscribe and rate five stars. Now... Back to the podcast. After testing the waters, dipping his toes in, Dylan decided to take the plunge. He said to himself, I am an entrepreneur. I am a creator. I am a problem solver. It took time to accept this identity. And even then, I don't know if it was really fully accepted, but he needed to try it on by experimenting with various business ventures. Eventually, he felt comfortable enough to carefully label himself an entrepreneur. Though he had been establishing this identity, it was still in its infancy. It was fragile, and it would be tested soon after he dropped out of university. When I dropped out of college, I wanted to learn more about like what real entrepreneurs were doing. I felt like I knew that repair industry so well, like my first instinct was to create something out of that. I had this idea for this app called Snello. It was a diagnostic app. So you could put in your symptoms. It would tell you what's wrong with your phone, what the part is, and then it would link you with the local repair shop where you could get it fixed. 
I went to a conference called Startup Grind. I was like, I have this brilliant app idea. I just sold a business for $100,000. My goal was to like kind of build this up and then sell it to someone. I didn't think I was like capable of like building a real business, but I thought it had value. I went to this conference in San Francisco and I remember sitting down in the audience and I got to hear all these different founders and co-founders talk. I got to hear the founder of LinkedIn, the founder of Method Soap, like a bunch of different people that I honestly looked up to. And what I found was I didn't actually get anything out of it. I came out of there actually feeling like a loser because I had these conversations with these guys that were doing these huge things. And I left there kind of in despair. I was like, these guys have something that I don't. I'm not gonna be able to do this. I had imposter syndrome, so like I just didn't believe that that was replicatable. When I left this conference, I thought it was going to be this huge, you know, life-altering moment for me. And that was when I ended up like buying the house, going down that route, because I was like, I know I can do this. And I actually left feeling that entrepreneurship was not attainable. Did not believe in myself. I said that I went to college because I wanted that comfort. And I think that that's what this was for me, right? Like I knew that I, if I bought a house that I would be able to flip it and make money on it. So it was a guaranteed thing for me. Whereas starting a business was scary. But it wasn't until the comfort level started to not matter as much because I was bored and unmotivated and unstimulated. I was looking for something more and I was like, I am not getting this out of what I'm doing. I had this journal of different business ideas. And so I was actively looking for a new business. I was stuck repairing a house that I was over repairing and I was unstimulated and unhappy. Again, it was never really about the money. It was all about like, how do I feel? Do I wake up every day excited about what I'm doing? In the beginning, the answer was yes. And then it turned into dread. I was like, what is the right thing for me? Like, I cannot imagine myself working at a desk job. I don't think I'm capable of starting another business. I don't know what to do. I was in this such a weird place. In one fell swoop, his trip to Startup Grind tore him back down. Dylan thought he could make it in the big leagues, but he struck out the moment he stepped up to plate. He felt incompetent. He let his fears fester and package him back into that cookie-cutter lifestyle he'd worked so tirelessly to break. Once again, he settled for comfort, finding solace in something he was confident doing, flipping houses. But Dylan listened to himself, his body, his mind, his spirit, and soon realized that he made a mistake. Once more, he found himself bored and listless, stuck doing a mundane job that neither piqued his curiosity nor challenged him. This state was transient. The house flipping project would bear unexpected fruit in form of inspiration. I was in the finishing stages of building this house and I was picking out a slab of granite. I pictured the exact tile that I wanted. And I went to this interior design showroom and I remember walking in and it was the most underwhelming experience of my life. I spent 20 minutes in there and I didn't find a single thing that I liked. That was where the idea for Vici Design came from. I sat down with one of the interior design showroom owners 
and said, hey, like, do you think that there would be an opportunity for creating glass tile that came in a bunch of different sizes and colors to kind of match the granite and countertop finishes that are out there? And she was like, absolutely, yes. And she literally was like, I will be your first customer. It felt so good to find an idea where I was getting validation right out of the gate. Like I have my first customer. And then I found all these different manufacturers for tile, but like there was a sea of different people and I had no idea what I was looking for. And someone introduced me to this tool called Port Examiner. So it's a website that you can go on and search your competitor's company name and look at who their manufacturer is. That was what I did. I used that tool and I looked up the existing companies that I knew that had glass tile and I went and visited a couple different manufacturers. When Dylan doesn't know something, he doesn't accept ignorance. He turns to the vast resources of the internet, namely Reddit, to search for a solution. The ability to self-teach, to educate without instruction is integral to Dylan's entrepreneurial process. Hell, I'd say it's an important skill that anyone should have. So Dylan took the self-education and restless energy that fueled his passion for solving problems all the way to China. You're traveling with this new sense of identity, and I imagine that changes how you interact with others. What was that experience like for you traveling around China? It changed how I carried myself. It changed how I talked about myself, how I felt about myself. This was actually what I consider the first time I felt like an entrepreneur. I was on the other side of the planet by myself, 19 years old, and I'm visiting manufacturers. I get to the manufacturer. They have welcomed Dylan Jacob, you know, in lights going across the warehouse. Everyone's clapping when I get in there. I was like, wow, like, I feel like a rock star. In the hostel I was staying in, there was a group of students. They're all from Australia. And we all became really good friends. We explored all of China together. You know, we're getting to know each other. And like that first night, they asked what I was doing there. I was like, oh, I'm visiting manufacturers. I have a business. And they look at me, they're like, how old are you? They're like, wow, dude, like I've never met an entrepreneur this young and stuff. And like, I didn't even created a business yet. Like I didn't have a single sale, right? Like I was just there visiting manufacturers, but like just being there and taking that step, I didn't even realize how big it was until they were like praising it. I had this like newfound kind of identity. Like wh what you said, I felt much more confident in what I was doing. When I would talk to people, I would tell them that I'm an entrepreneur. Um, and I kind of like took that identity on. And I still didn't consider myself an entrepreneur yet, but I was headed there. Like I, mentally, I really felt like I was onto something and that I was like on that right path to becoming successful. A switch was flipped. The insecurities he harbored dimmed. It was the same thing I'd always done. It was just like identifying and then creating value and I would get paid for it. Over a year period, I ended up getting contracts with um, Wayfair, Overstock, House. Uh, we had a deal in the works with Home Depot. We were in a bunch of showrooms and I was making good money again. But after all that like kind of wore off, like all the initial fun behind building it, I was bored. I was like, this isn't what I want to do. I, I wasn't being fulfilled by it anymore. There wasn't a challenge for me. Once again, Dylan's company was wildly successful. Once again, he didn't feel successful. He was unchallenged, unmotivated. He felt like he was solving the same equation over and over and over and over again, just plugging in different variables. 
Rather than the freeing feeling expected of an entrepreneurial venture, his business felt like a cage. He wasn't drawn to interior design. He had no love of real estate. Instead, Dylan was bound once more by the confines of stability. He was approaching entrepreneurship from a flipper's mentality, only thinking in terms of profit. But internally, he sought something more than that. He still had an itch to create and invent. And this time, he wanted to create more than just a shell of a company following his usual model. He wanted to make his mark. Finally, after years shackled by low expectations and desire for material wealth, he was ready to live for himself. He just wanted to try something new. And one of the first ideas that he tried was kind of weird. I had this, this journal and um, I did a bunch of different business ideas in between Vichy Design and actually Brewmate. And one of them was called Naughty Cold Box. So Christmas 2015, I created a company called Naughty Cold Box where you could anonymously send cold to anyone in the US with a handwritten note from Santa Claus on like why they're a piece of shit. And it blew up. I like astroturfed on Reddit, like create a bunch of fake accounts, upvoted it. I pitched it to a bunch of news outlets. We got it on Daily Dot. We got it on Huffington Post. A bunch of different news outlets had picked this up and it was just like a little side hustle, but I made money on it and it was fun because I got to start something new. What I found was every time I created something new, I was looking to create something new again. Right. And as soon as I was done or I felt like I had kind of seen that idea through, I was bored again. So I was still actively searching for a new business idea. I had like realized pretty early on that I hated warm beer. And every time the same thing was happening to me, like I would get three quarters of the way done with this beer and the last quarter would be warm and then I'd throw it away because that's what I was used to doing and I'd open another one. Like, this is so wasteful. And I remember jotting down, like, figure out a way to keep beer cold, like create a device to keep beer cold. And that was where the whole idea for Brewmate kind of originated. Crossing off business ideas in his journal, Dylan finally arrived in an idea that solved a problem that he had experience with. He could rid the world of one of its most pressing problems, warm beer. He realized that the identity of an entrepreneur was not rigid. The title was more about just starting something. The gimmicks of sending coal and flipping houses were fun at first. However, nothing he had created thus far brought him long-term joy. Project after project, he had started and scrapped. But this latest idea was different. So he got to work inventing. So the idea for the product, it was called the Hopsulator. So it's like a hops insulator. And so I did a bunch of research on, you know, the products that were out there for keeping things cold. And what I had found was there were beer koozies that were out there for 12 ounce cans, but no one had ever made one for a 16 ounce can. And so, you know, again, I went, I found a manufacturer. I looked in the US, no one was here, went overseas, found a manufacturer. And I came to them with my initial sketches and was like, hey, are you capable of producing this? You know, the answer for all of them was yes. In my previous two businesses, you know, I knew how to build a store. I knew how to source a manufacturer. I also had just gotten into digital ads with Vichy Design, and so I kind of knew that landscape a little bit. Like I knew how to create a landing page. I knew how to run uh, very basic Facebook campaigns. 
And again, I was part of a bunch of subreddits and stuff like marketing subreddits where I'd ask people questions and whatnot, figure out how to structure the campaigns, watch YouTube videos. But I had this initial concept created for the Hopslater. It was just a CAD design. So I just had this modeled. I hired a graph designer off of like Fiverr to uh, Photoshop this into people's hands. And I created a little crappy landing page. And then it gave people the option to sign up and put their email in to get notified whenever this product was available. So it was kind of like a knockoff Kickstarter. Like I didn't want to give Kickstarter 10% of my funds. So I was like, I'm just going to run lead gen campaigns and, and see if people actually are even interested before I invest anything into this. That was probably a week of like talking to people. And then I went into Sun King, the brewery in Indiana. And I, you know, went up to the tap counter and was like, Hey, are the owners in? And they're like, no, but they'll be in tomorrow. And I was like, okay, would they care if I just had like five minutes of their time? I have an idea and it doesn't have anything to do with beer per se. They ended up meeting with me. Both of the owners were there and I sat down and I showed them this landing page and the model I'd created. And I was like, tell me that you don't have the same problem. Right. And they were like, yeah, like a hundred percent. I think people would buy this. And I was like, would you commit to like buying these in bulk to put in your showroom? And they were like, yeah, like we'll commit. So they committed to 240 units. And I was like, wow. And so, you know, I ordered a few thousand units of this product. You know, it took six weeks to develop the initial product. Not a whole lot of time invested into it. The people that were buying it knew that it was a, like kind of MVP. Like I told people, hey, like this isn't the final product. So send me your feedback. I want to know what you like, what you don't like, what you want to see. But I'm working towards something bigger. And for the most part, honestly, like even with how bad it looked, it functioned really well. People were ecstatic about it. Like the feedback that I got for the most part was very, very positive. Dylan started testing. He realized he could get a customer, but he also knew he had to make sure the customers loved the product. So he shipped prototypes out to a few people and just took notes. A lot of times, entrepreneurs will rush forward with an idea because they think they know what people want. And often, they're wrong. You have to stop and listen. And that's exactly what Dylan did. He listened and learned people loved it. And Dylan felt that love. You know, for the first time, not only did I look at myself as an entrepreneur, but I felt so happy and fulfilled all around. And I didn't feel like there was anything missing. I really put all my focus into improvement. I went back to the drawing board and I said, I'm going to invest this money into having the final version created for you guys. And I was like, I don't know how long it's going to take, but when it does, I'll give you guys all a free one. It ended up taking us close to a year and like 11 different versions to get to the Hopslater trio that we have today. But in the process, I was so bored and I wanted to create. I remember like I was on the beach and I got a drinking ticket for having glass on the beach. I had a bottle of wine with me. And so that was where the idea for the wine slater came about. It was a wine canteen. You pour the wine directly inside at the ideal temperature. So pulled out of the wine cellar, fridge, wherever, uh, poured inside, and then it would keep it perfectly chilled for 24 hours. You didn't need ice. You just tossed it in a backpack and you can now take it camping to the beach, on the boat, wherever glass can go, it can go. After the Hopslater was developed, I was like, okay, we're now working on a second product. So I felt like I needed a brand name to like kind of house all these products. And I was like, well, you know, I started jotting down, like, what are we trying to do as a brand? Well, we want to keep things cold. 
So I started looking up like synonyms for cold. Cryo means cold. Cryo gear sounds cooler than cold gear. So I'll call it cryo gear. And so the wine slater, it followed the same suit. So it was like hop slaters for beer, wine slaters for wine. And they both serve the same purpose for keeping their individual adult beverage categories cold. And this is when I actually started really looking into the beverage space as a whole. Like I started to become a professional at drinkware. I also understood that like Yeti, Hydro Flask, all the big players in the market, their biggest categories were hydration. So they were really focused on water bottles, coffee mugs, tumblers, and most of them didn't even have an alcohol category. So there was all these products that I started to have ideas for. Cause it was like, okay, I have the hop slater for 16 ounce cans, but what about slim cans? What about 24 ounce cans? What about bottles? So I had all these ideas that were based around like the adult beverage space and no one had created anything for them. So I was like, cool. Like I have a wide open playing field I had that model created, I had it photoshopped into people's hands, I created a landing page, and I ran Facebook ads, and I collected 7,000 emails. And that was the beginning of our biggest launch ever. So I ordered 7,000 units of the Wine Slater, in seven different colors. So 1,000 units of each color. I had narrowed it down to seven different colors and they were all different colors of the rainbow. Cause like with Vichy Design, I would look at color trends of the year. So like Pantone colors. And so I brought that into the drinkware. It was like what colors were popular that year. And those were the colors, you know, along with the feedback that I was gonna launch. We started doing pre-orders for Christmas. We sold out in less than two weeks and did $270,000 in sales. You hear $270,000 in less than two weeks. It seems like success was instant, but think about everything Dylan has said. He researched the market. Who are the players in drinkware and what market were they missing? Where could he expand? He started with beer, but why not wine? How could he get his product in front of people? He researched Facebook ads and marketing. He even looked at color trends to find the most in-demand colors. Every detail was accounted for and there was so much preparation. This was no overnight success. This was carefully planned. He had finally met his match, a business concept in which he was solving problems that kept him on his toes. And success would prove exponential. With GV Supply Company, we had passed $300,000, but that was in a year period. We had just condensed that into two weeks. So in January, I created our Uncork series. So I started working that in December. As soon as the wine slater launched, I already had like a, a notepad of products I wanted to create and the wine tumbler was next. And so I had that created. We launched that in April. We were then doing pre-orders and it was funding everything because I was still in the process of selling my house. Um, and so I didn't have a ton of excess capital. So I was like spending money on creating molds, which wasn't cheap. So a lot of the profit that we were making was going back into developing the other products. And so we would do pre-orders. Like I had a warehouse at this time that actually part of it was Vici Design and the other half I had separated out for when we would get these pre-orders in. So we would receive them in 
Um, these were all pre-sold, so you know we would do pre-orders for 30 days or so, get it produced. 50 to 60 days later, those products would come in, and then we would ship them out. I would hire a bunch of friends, not even hire, like I'd have a bunch of friends come in. I would pay them cash and buy pizza, and we would ship out a few thousand orders. And that first year, we did $2.1 million, and I was officially a millionaire. remember when we passed that million dollar mark it was like I had done a million dollars in sales I had made it I'm like I'm so successful like I felt so good about myself only a few years later Dylan had proved that his professors were wrong he wasn't a pro athlete yet he was a millionaire the boy who sold drugs got into fights and had no future suddenly had a future that was stunningly bright But this ascendance to the top would have a hiccup. The name he had chosen, Cryogear, wasn't as unique as he'd hoped. So I created the wine slider, Cryogear. Pop slider, Cryogear. Created the wine tumbler, Cryogear. And then in April 2017, we got a cease and desist. Actually, it wasn't a cease and desist. It was a lawsuit for $100,000 from a company. I don't even want to name them, but they had Cryo in their name. And they were a special effects company that um, had, they did cryotubes for nightclubs that shot out liquid nitrogen for like club events. And they had categorized it underneath barware. And I had filed a trademark for cryogear underneath barware too. And so rather than just kind of challenging that trademark, they just filed a full-fledged lawsuit. My lawyer's standing there like, hey, listen, like you're a pretty young brand. Like best thing to do right now is just to change your name. And I was like, yeah, sure. I've been thinking about changing it anyways. Like no problem. Again, I went back to the drawing board. And at this time, like I had really come to understand what our specialty was going to be as a brand. So it was creating drinkware designs, like elevate and create a better drinking experience. Our first logo, which is actually our logo today, I had uh, done on 99 designs for $500. That was where our brewmate logo from today. I love it. Like I love our logo and our name, but it literally, I paid $500 for it. And the name brewmate came about from like your drinking buddy. It was like, what are we to you, right? It was like, you're drinking, buddy. Like, we're here to keep your beer and wine cold. And I was like, this is perfect. Like, this is perfect. Dylan did not see the lawsuit coming, but he sees it as a blessing rather than a curse. He was given the chance to change his brand name and reevaluate his company's identity. Now, with clear direction, Dylan was ready to march forward with Brewmate. next year, my goal was to do $3 million. I was like, we did two this year. In 2018, we did $19 million. We went from two to 19 in a year. Part of what I did as my development process was I would look at alcohol sales trends. And so there was a report that had came out in Q4 that was talking about the trajectory for 2018 and how craft beer sales were slowing down, but light beer sales were like the fastest growing category for beer. And McUltra was actually the fastest growing light beer brand. And I drink McUltra and I happen to know that their cans came in 12 ounce slim cans, which was already a product that I wanted to create for Red Bull. But then I was like, oh, like there's beer that comes in this size too. Seltzers didn't really exist. Like they kind of did, but I knew nothing about them. It wasn't on anyone's radar. And so I launched this for McUltra. And then by the time it launched, I ordered 10,000 units. By the time it launched, like White Claw was just catching on and we sold out 10,000 units in like three days. And I'm talking like we're doing like 50, 60, $70,000 days.
so for all of 2018, like our big focus was on one, innovating new products. So I wanted to start introducing as fast as possible all these different product categories I had. And then on the flip side, also really focusing like uh, creating brand identities for each product, figuring out which products are going to be our hero products, and then really focusing on whatever product was getting us the lowest CPA possible. I was just in bootstrap mode. You know, I had sold my house, moved into a 700 square foot apartment, sold my car that I had at the time. I bought like a $1,500 Honda Civic. And I just went into straight like head down hustle mode. I'm putting all my dollars into this. I invested hundreds of thousands of dollars into inventory, into product development, design, everything. I was like, I am going all in. This is the first time that I'm so confident in this idea. Like I just knew that it was going to work. People thought I was crazy. They're like, no one's gonna pay $25 for a beer cozy. I'm like, watch me. I just have to figure out the messaging. In 2018, I think what we really found was we launched a bunch of new products. We had figured out what our hero products were. And then we also figured out how to advertise these products in a way that no one else had ever done. So one, direct to consumer. We have the largest ad spend out of any brand, including Yeti, who's a $3 billion brand for online digital presence. And on the flip side, it was how do we convey the benefit of the products in a way that doesn't seem gimmicky? At the time, like people viewed insulated drinkware kind of as like an expensive luxury. Everyone advertised it as it keeps your water or your drinks cold for 24 hours and this and that and the other. We got rid of that messaging. I said, no one wants to keep their beer cold for 24 hours. Like that's the stupidest message ever. So we switched to it keeps all of your adult beverages perfectly chilled. It keeps your beer perfectly chilled from the time you open it until you finish it. The way we showcased the product was talking about like the benefits of what it could actually do in a way that did not come off as gimmicky. What I had found as a CEO and what I found over the years is like, I'm really good at figuring out what I'm good at and then also figuring out what I'm bad at and then hiring the right people to fill kind of the gaps of like where I feel like I fall short. I think one of the things that I'm really good at is like, I'm able to like look at a market and I know right off the bat, if a product's even gonna work, it's just like, it's like this intuition. That's my, my strong suit as a founder is like looking at, you know, the adult beverage industry as a whole and kind of identifying the gaps again, like where's the opportunity here and how can I enhance and make things better for people? Where can I add value? And in a way where people didn't even know that they needed value, like people didn't even know that they needed this product. I was the ideal consumer, right? Like I created this product out of my own necessity. So I knew that it had value. I just had to figure out how to get everyone else to see that. It started with a hunch and then like over time, like it continued to build and build and build and the sales numbers proved that like this wasn't a hunch any longer. I started studying, you know, what is everyone else's audience? Like, how are they reaching them? Who is their audience? And what I found was the majority of these other brands were actually targeting a much older audience. And so I wanted to target millennials and, you know, Gen Z, that 21 to 45 age range. And so we built this brand in a way that we told the story different. We had a different brand and aesthetic. We had created products that had never previously been created. And then we are reaching a customer that previously was not interested in this market. And ultimately we were converting and building an audience and a category that wasn't competing. And so that shielded us in a lot of ways where like, even though a lot of our competition has released competing products, we're continuing to grow faster than ever. And we're really shielded from them because they still just have this different audience that we're not going after. Again, Dylan researched what people actually wanted. He had tried the gimmick approach with the sending people coal business, and that was fun. But he had decided that Brewmate was a business that he would sink his passion and energy to. 
he would surrender to his creation, whatever it took. Thus, Brewmate could not be a gimmick. He had to position his branding in a way that made his inventions a part of his customer's life. It worked. He was proving that his approach worked. However, despite the ample evidence of his success, Dylan still felt like an imposter. Imposter syndrome is a real thing, right? It's an important topic to touch on because a lot of people have this and I personally suffer from it. A lot of my friends who are entrepreneurs also do. So every entrepreneur goes through this period and like I finally just overcame this where every business I had and I would see success, even with Brewmate, see success. I just thought that it was a combination of kind of like right place, right idea at the right time. And then what I found over time was that every entrepreneur that I found had the same mindset. They're like, I don't belong here. I don't deserve this. And then I talked to them and I'm like, they were in the right place at the right time with the right product and it just worked. And then what I found was what makes successful entrepreneurs are people that are willing to take risk and they have the right product at the right time and they have the right audience. And that is what creates success. And so it is luck, but you have to be willing to put yourself out there and like actually do the work to even put yourself in a position to be able to take advantage of that, right? Recognizing the opportunity, it's not necessarily luck. It's actually like you're kind of setting up yourself for success and you have to believe in it enough to to know that this is gonna work. Like it's easy to look back and go, that could have not worked. And that's true. Most people that have like successful businesses, they've had like five, six, seven, where the stars did not align. Like it wasn't the right product. They didn't have a big enough audience. They didn't really understand what they were trying to accomplish as a brand. And it didn't work because guess what? Like it has to all align at the same time. And for me, like Brewmate was that. I started this business at the exact right time. But like, I think in the future, what I would look for in any business that I start is do those pieces actually work, right? Like if I'm looking at a new business idea, is this the right time? Do I know who the audience is? Is someone else already doing this? And am I differentiating myself in the right way? And if the answer is no, I won't do it because I know it's going to fail. Like those have to align. Like it has to be the right time. And it's not about luck. It's about being able to identify that and know when to say no and when to say yes and when to move forward and when to double down. I knew when to double down because I was watching this unfold in front of my eyes and I was willing to take that risk because I believed in it. There were so many times along this journey where I could have just said no and not done it and I wouldn't be here. I'd probably still be running some small under million dollar business or flipping houses, who knows? But the thing is, is like my biggest thing as an entrepreneur that I've been really good at is pivoting, like identifying again, what I'm good at, what I'm not, what the business is good at, what the business is not good at and shifting along the way. And, and ultimately who we are as a brand today and who I am as a person today is a combination of thousands of pivots over the last four years of all these different small changes that I've made every single day to become a better person, a better leader with a better business. That's why I am who I am today. Dylan is focused on providing real value and remains open and flexible to any and all opportunities. He's been in the game long enough to have a good idea what will fly and what will flop. While luck may play a part in the equation of success, luck does not an entrepreneur make. By admitting to luck, Dylan sells himself short succumbing to the idea that entrepreneurship is easy if you've built up enough karma or come across a leprechaun. Luck belies the research, focus, determination, and work ethic required to build a great company. Like we mentioned before, you also have to listen. 
to your customers and to yourself. Is this business right for me? Is this something that I want to create a long-term relationship with? I always use the analogy of when you're not happy in life or when you're not happy in a relationship and when you're not happy in a business, you're always looking outside of that, right? Like if you're in an unhappy relationship, you're always going to be looking like you'll have wandering eyes. So when another attractive girl walks by you um, or guy, you look at them, right? And you're like, the grass is greener on the other side. That's kind of the philosophy that you have. You're always looking for something better. And when you find the right person, that goes away, right? Like you no longer have wandering eyes. You're committed to this person. And business is the exact same way for me. And I know this because like I was in toxic relationships before where I wasn't happy and I did have a wandering eye and things like that. Whereas I'm in a very happy relationship now and I don't like I'm very committed to my relationship. And I look at Brumet the exact same way. Because for me, Brumate is perfect. Brumate to me is everything that I wanted in a business that I'd ever dreamed of. And it fulfills me in a way that like, I don't believe another business can. Not right now, at least. There's always new goals that we can set, right? Like, so like, that's kind of what I focus on day to days. What new goals can we set? How do we hit them? Always trying to figure out how to continue challenging myself within this business and ultimately creating something bigger and better than the day before, the year before. And that's always worked. Every year I put together projections. Our projections are never right, like ever. But it's fun for me because it sets kind of a bar of like where I want to be. And so for this year, I'd set the bar. We had done about $60 million collective revenue. I said, I want to have our first year where we do over $50 million in 12 calendar months. And we're now in May and we're on track to do 100. Every time I set a goal, it is a a challenge for me, right? Like I, I set this goal. I say, I want to hit 50 and here are all the things that I need to do to hit that. We're going to expand wholesale. We're going to bring on, you know, we brought on a hundred sales reps. We started attending all the trade shows. We did over a million dollars in wholesale revenue just in January. We started scaling our Amazon presence. We started introducing higher price point products. Um, we started diversifying all of our advertising channels last year. So it was like, it becomes this challenge of, okay, here's this goal. And here's everything I'm going to do to get there. And then the goal is always climbing, right? So like once I hit that goal, it's like, okay, well, here's a new goal. So now this goal, the goal for the year is 100. And now everything shifted to how do we get to 100? What do I have to do to get us there? What team members do I need? What do I need to do as a leader? And on the flip side of that, then I also have the challenging aspect of like, I'm the head of product development design. So every single day I'm thinking about what new products are coming to market. I'm working on the design. I'm working with the engineering teams. And so I'm very fulfilled all around. I have a fantastic team that's amazing. I absolutely love what I do. And so I'm not thinking about like, where's our exit point or, you know, when do I finally get to have all this money in my pocket or whatever it is. Like I am very, I don't, I don't like to say the word content because I'm not content at all, but I'm not thinking about what's next for me. I'm thinking about what is next for Brewmate. That's my purpose. Like Brewmate is my purpose. How do I make Brewmate better? Where are we headed next and how do we get there? And that is my focus. I'm sure down the line, like that'll change, but that's going to be the indicator that now it's time to start looking for an acquisition partner or whatever it is. But until that day comes, like I'm not looking outside the business. I'm really just focused on our growth and, and where we're headed.
I always like to use relationships because you have a relationship with your business. Like it really is. It's a, it's another relationship in your life. So I like to use them as, as analogies, but starting a business and running a business for the sake of being rich or having money. And that's the only purpose behind it. Like there's no other purpose is the same as dating a girl because she's really attractive, but not really getting to know her. That's only going to last so long before you get burnt out and you're over it. Right. And, and it's the same for both. Like no matter who you're into, like if you're only with someone for superficial reasons, you're going to be over it very quickly. And it's the same thing with business. And so I found that with the other businesses. And I'm not going to lie. My first business, the money is what kept me going. It was like I was doing it for money, but I enjoyed the process. And then I got to the second business and I enjoyed the process a little bit less. And I was still focused on money. And then I got the roommate and I didn't give a shit about the money because I didn't even know if it was going to be successful. But I was like, this is going to be so fun and so cool to create. And I really hope people like it. And then it morphed into something massive. And so what I found over the years was like, the reason why Brewmate was so successful was because I was truly solving a problem that I had identified both for myself and for other people. And then I created it out of purpose, not because I was like, oh, this beer koozie is gonna make me into you know a millionaire and in four years, we're gonna be doing a hundred million dollars. Like I had no idea. None of that was on the table because for the first time I had found purpose you know, I had identified in the previous businesses what I enjoyed and what I didn't and what I was missing. I, I actually had a pretty unhealthy relationship with money in the beginning. My high school senior paper was actually called Money Can Buy Happiness. And it was a 10-page detailed thesis on on basically why money could buy happiness and it wasn't necessarily that like money could make people happy but it was that it enabled you to do things that would make you happy and so the issue was that my relationship with money was that money can make me financially stable which makes me not worry which makes me happy and money allows me to travel and do things that i like the paper wasn't about like, oh, it buys me superficial things, which make me happy. But it was like money helps you, you know, not worry. And you know, you're not worrying about how to put food on the table. You're not working a job that you don't like. And so it does create a better life, ultimately. But I, I still looked at money in this way where I wasn't happy. And so I was chasing money to be able to travel, to be able to have financial stability. And then I was like, once I get that, then I will be happy. And then guess what? I got it. And I wasn't happy because what I found was that no matter how rich you are, money does not solve problems. Yes, maybe you're not worrying about it, you know, how to put food on the table anymore. Maybe you're not worrying about how to provide for your family. Rich people still get anxious. Rich people are still depressed. No matter how much money you have, those problems do not go away. No matter how much you try and fill them with material things like watches and clothes and cars and girls and drugs and all these different things. What I found over time was like understanding that that money does have a place but money should not be the driver for anything you're doing in life. Like I really tried to go outside of that and figure out, okay, what is my purpose as a leader? What am I trying to accomplish as a brand? And also outside of that, like, what is my version of happiness? I think that's the evolution of any entrepreneur and also any person in life is like, it's like this, this search constantly to like better yourself and better your life. And that's kind of my goal as a whole is like, 
you know, am I bettering myself every day? Am I bettering the business? And so it's not always just going to be monetary. That's just an easy indicator. You know, as a whole, I'm looking at much more than that. And, and I don't weigh our success based on, on just money. But that's the beauty of life, right? Like, you never know what's next. I mean, if, if I saw the future 10 years ago, I would have never believed it. And I'm sure 10 years from now, I won't even recognize my present day self. In a capital-driven country, it is no surprise that money was initially weighted so heavily for Dylan. Immigrants from across the globe come to America to look for a better life. While this better life comes in many shapes and forms, a common thread, and probably the easiest thread, is money. The idea of money being equated with happiness was a defining motivator for most of Dylan's early entrepreneurial pursuits. Since his release from Juvie, he was on a warpath for validation. He needed to prove that he was not the small-town drug dealer destined for a forgotten existence. He was ready to do better, to be better. Dylan channeled his restless energy into productivity. He conquered market after market. Each succession was more impressive than the next. And yet he still felt hollow. He was missing a key factor, passion. He realized the entire time he was chasing someone else's dream and hollow materialism. But he found his soulmate in Brewmate and reflected on a key distinction. While money was a vessel for happiness, it's not the end game. Brewmate changed his outlook. It gave him a new sense of self-awareness that elevated both his work and personal health. He has proven that it's possible to follow your passion without compromising your happiness or your wealth. And as always, Dylan is not planning on ending his journey here. I can't wait to see what challenges he tackles next. Thank you so much for listening and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter by going to findingfounders.co or check us out on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Instagram at Finding Founders Podcast. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Adrian Tapia leads the editing team with Matt Fernandez and Sophia Donner. Sophie Davies leads the writing team with Dan O'Nissen, Joyce Mock, and Elizabeth Bowen. Zahej Sandu leads the outreach team with Jessica Lynn, Sasha Ivanova, and Roma Bedeker. Our design team is Phoebe Sajor, James Barton, Rachel Dang, and Annie Liu. Our events team is Maddie Bozen and Dharma Shah. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.